All right, guys. So um, the, the um, chart about the kings and the prophets that I've handed out in weeks past, um, if you'll notice after the first, the three big kings you might say, Saul, David, and Solomon, it splits, which is where we left, where we left off last week. And now we have the northern and southern kingdom of Israel excuse me, <clears throat> which is now going to, from now on will be referred to the northern 10 tribes as Israel, the southern two tribes as Judah. So that's kind of a, a something thing to be thinking about to avoid confusion. And as you can see, the number of kings that we're going to cover exponentially increases. So in thinking about how best to organize this for um, ease of study and for ease of getting through it, what I'm going to do is today we are going to do <clears throat> excuse me, Israel, that is the northern 10 tribes, okay? We're going to pick off right where we left off with the kingdom dividing, and we are going to go through to the end of Israel, okay? Next week, we will come back and do Judah, all right? It's a lot of names, and the narrative is mixed even within the same text. However, I found it a little more convenient, and hopefully for you guys, a little bit more approachable if we do each one of the divided kingdoms separately. So last week, we made it to the divided kingdoms. For the next two weeks, we will do the divided kingdoms, um, but we will be doing pretty much exclusively Israel, so that will be on the, the left side of that sheet. I encourage you to refer to that sheet liberally, also to keep fresh in your mind where the prophets come in, and also a relative time frame of the two kingdoms at the same time. So um, it was a help for me, and I hope it will be useful for you. So we remember Solomon. We remember his sin. We remember the dividing of the kingdom. <clears throat> Jeroboam, who's king in the, in the uh, north, in the Israel, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son from the Davidic line, king in the south. And this is where we'll pick up. We're going to be in... Uh, <clears throat> 1 Kings 13, where we start. And we know that um, Jeroboam was, a, was appointed by God. He, is, he, was a, he was an able Israelite, but he was not um, of royal lineage, lineage. And we know that he built golden calves at high places in the northern kingdom of Israel. For those of you who weren't here, we talked about how it would be really hard to be king of what you want to be a self-contained entity if your population has to go to the south to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. This is a problem. Um, I believe we, we spoke about it, something akin to King Henry VIII and the Catholic Church. He needed to not be subservient to a foreign power for religious reasons, so he created his own church. Somewhat in that way, we see Jeroboam appointing his own priests, setting up high places to worship, building golden calves. So right away, and one would think that the image of a golden calf for an Israelite might have a certain connotation that would be less than worshipful, but it appear, apparently not. So, um, so there's already sin going on in the north, and people being led astray. We move on um, and pick up an unnamed prophet, simply known by, as the man of God, um, interrupts Jeroboam. Jeroboam's going to one of his altars at Bethel to, um, <clears throat> to sacrifice and worship, and the man of God gives a, uh, prophesies a judgment against him, and he predicts there will be a Davidic king in other words, from the rival southern nation of Judah, named Josiah, who will tear down this abominable altar. However, before the altar is torn down, the priests themselves, remember, these are the other priests, the new priests, the priests that are not following the old rules of God, will be sacrificed upon that altar. That's, that's, pretty, uh, that's a pretty harsh judgment. Um, and so we, have, we sort of ask ourselves, um, why would this prophet from God make such an unsettling judgment against this new altar? God himself was the one who had ordained Jeroboam's reign. Thoughts, why? That's a big, Steve, that's a big judgment um, to proclaim against a king and against his altar. 
Were these priests Levites, or were they like from We'll get Babel? to that, but at, at some point it's actually opened up so that anybody, even those who were not Levitical, could be priests. At the very least, we can say they are priests that are willing to function in this system, which is abandon the Mosaic law because we have idols, we have high places, it's not the worship that was originally prescribed, and some of them may have been Levites, but like I said, we'll get to it, it actually comes to a point where it sort of opened up, and anybody who wants to be a priest in the Northern Kingdom, hey, you wanna be a priest? You can be a priest. You wanna be a priest? You can be a priest. So, that's a good question. And wasn't there also a bunch of people catering to Jezebel and We'll get to that. We will definitely get to Jezebel. Absolutely. <laughs> That's, um, but I just, it, it's a pretty harsh judgment. I mean, first of all, it's pretty bold to approach a king who's about to sacrifice on this new altar he's built and say, like, the priests themselves are going to be sacrificed on this altar. It's, it's, it's abominable. It's a terrible thing. Yes. Well, just because God has uh, appointed him, it doesn't mean he's appointed him for good or everything he's going to do is good. He maybe appointed him just simply to make a point. And the, the point is that you're going to do bad and I'm going to judge it. Absolutely. I'm sovereign God I, and you're not following me. And, and so I'm going to appoint you to be the recipient of my wrath. I think that's absolutely true. And, and we can't skip over the fact um, that the rules of God had not been followed by this new northern king. Um, I put in here... And we know that God is very, very jealous and very exacting when it comes to his worship. Anyone remember Nadab and Abihu? Just because you're priests and just because you're offering sacrificial sacrifices, if you're not following God's law, I mean, they, were, they died on the spot. So God is very jealous regarding his worship, rightly so. Um, so in a way, he's already showing the folly of the northern kingdom and by pronouncing this judgment against the altar, he's also pronouncing the sin of the new king. So, so it's just right in his face with it. And what would a king do in this position? Your authority is being challenged, your new system of worship is being challenged. Well, what any king would do? He's enraged and he stretches out his, king, his kingly hand to indicate that the prophet, this man of God, should be seized and the hand dries up and withers Jeroboam can't even bring it back to himself the arm is frozen and it hangs there like a prosthetic limb the king cannot move it until at the king's pleading the prophet prays to God and the arm is restored so there's a humbling moment right this man appears before you he insults the new altar by extension he insults you you stretch out your hand to like seize that man, that impudent man, and your hand becomes withered and frozen, you can't move it. And then with no other recourse, you ask this prophet, please pray to your God and restore my hand so that I can move it again, and he does. Um, so quickly changing his approach, the king invites this man of God, this prophet, to dine with him and receive a reward. The man of God refuses, no, God has told me I cannot eat or drink at this time, it's forbidden by God, then the prophet departs. And even after this, Jeroboam does not, and he does not curtail his worship practices. He continues to set up high places for the people to worship, and now, back to your point here, Steve, even begins appointing non-Levitical priests. In effect, any Israelite who desires it can now become a priest of one of these high places. An absolute violation of God's law. Let's be totally clear here. These places should not be set up. This worship should not be happening. And these people should not be priests. So you have to see how very quickly we're slipping from the priestly system, the law of Moses. Very quickly, things are crumbling. They're falling apart. And God, who as we talked about, jealously guards the worship of himself, will soon destroy the house of Jeroboam completely from the face of the earth. So we move further forward. When his son becomes ill, Jeroboam, the king, bravely sends his wife in disguise to inquire of a blind prophet. Will my son, will, will, will he live? The prophet's name is Hijah. 
And it's interesting that she was sent instead of the king going himself. Maybe that was to save face. Although going in disguise to a blind prophet, some people might say is a little foolish. So what happens? She walks in. Instantly the prophet knows who it is, right? Because, you know, he's a prophet. And then the, he tells her God is angered because of her husband Jeroboam's faithlessness and he will burn up the house of Jeroboam. Also, that sick child will die the instant you return to that city that you came from. And so what happens? Jeroboam dies after running, reigning for 22 years over Israel. And during this time, there'd also been war with Judah. So now we have warring in between the north and the southern kingdoms. And his son Nadab, Nadab, I don't know where that name came from because again, anyone who's knowledgeable about the history of Israel knows about the priest Nadab, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire before the Lord like we talked about, was consumed, but they, I guess they still use the name. His son Nadab reigns in Jeroboam's place as the new king. So Nadab did evil as king over Israel and reigned for two years. And a man named Bashar strikes down Nadab during a siege and takes the throne. And Bashar immediately slays the entire house of Jeroboam, fulfilling Ahijah's prophecy. We're in 1 Kings 15 at this point. Um, and Bashar reigns as king over Israel for 24 years. He also does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Get used to that phrase when we're describing Israel's kings. It seems bad, it actually gets worse. The Lord speaks through a prophet and indicates that Bashar and all his household will be swept away just like Jeroboam because he's committing the same kinds of evils. God even describes how uh, dogs and birds shall consume the bodies of anyone belonging to Bashar. So it's, it's kind of funny. We just had this evil king and God raises up someone to wipe him out, take the throne. And this king's also evil and God's like, I'm going to wipe you out too. This starts happening more frequently. Um, so Elah, the son of Basha, reigns over Israel, and the commander over half of his chariots coveted the throne. He catches Elah while the king was drunk, strikes him down, and reigns in his place. Thus Zimri becomes king of Israel. And as soon as Zimri becomes king of Israel, he kills the entire household of Basha, just as the prophet had said. So Zimri reigns for what I would refer to as a rather modest seven days until it's discovered that he murdered the king. I mean, and even in this time, in this place, with all this craziness going on, you're like, you're an army officer and you killed the king. I mean, all of our kings are messed up, but that's, that's worse. So what happens? The people move to make Omri, who's the commander of the army, the new king. Omri moves his army and lays siege to the city where Zimri has usurped this power. And when Zimri sees that the city has fallen, he goes into the king's house and burns it down around and on top of himself. If I can't be king, I won't be. Also, he probably wasn't gonna make it out anyway because of his treachery, but again, a very sort of dramatic end to a a week's worth of being king um, and, and, and a picture of just where Israel at at this time. At this point, there's actually confusion. Who is king over Israel? Half of Israel wants Omri to be king, the commander of the army, and half of the people back a man named Tibni. I'm doing my best with these names. Um, those who support Omri overcame those who supported Tibni, and Tibni died. What are we describing here? These are civil war-like conditions. We just split the kingdom, north and south, and now the northern kingdom, Israel, is on the verge of splitting itself because the people are divided over who will be king, and, but half of them overcome the other half, and surprise, surprise, the losing candidate dies, and Omri becomes king over Israel. What are we witnessing? What are these passages telling us about this? Thoughts on, I wanna pause here because I feel like the narrative moves kinda quickly. I'm sorry, I have to move kinda quickly so we can get through it. But just from what I've shared, 
What are we witnessing? What's the situation? What is happening to God's people? To me, it kind of sounds like judges, you know, when everybody's doing right in their own eyes, just that they're, they're completely lawless. It's an insurrection. Everyone is completely lost, and, the, and it's unsettling. There's no stability. And even the priestly class that is is a counterfeit class made up of anybody who wants to be a priest. They're not holding the original laws of God. This is a disaster. Yes, Bennett. I think that the kings are not meant to rule because they are being a cruel to the other people who are who is murdering the people from their place. I I agree. Thank you. I think I think that we can definitely say cruelty is a feature of the kings during it's this period of time. It's a big part in this uh, chapter. What's up? It's a big part in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I agree. The cruelty. And, and we might be tempted to skip over that and just say, oh, this king took over and slaughtered the whole household and everyone else of the previous king. Everyone. Everyone. Men, boys, women, children, little babies. Because if you want to be king, you cannot have that kind of competition. It has, you have to have a clean slate. And it's horrible. Wanda. Well, what I can't figure out is <clears throat> why can't they realize it's because they, fors- they forsake God. Why is that not coming to their brain? A good question. A, an excellent question. And with their history, like I said, you would think that the idea of a counterfeit priesthood, worshiping golden calves of all things, you know, um, having a non-Davidic king, but that's where we find themselves. That's where they find themselves. And um, they're... That's true. That's true. It is po- that's a fair point. It is possible that they have lost some of the law and lost some of the tradition because it's not being faithfully instructed to them. I think that's possibly true. And we see how very quickly, even within a generation or two, because this has happened to Israel before, um, you know, and we, when, when the, the law is not taught within a few generations, I mean, very quickly it becomes a free-for-all. Al. I was just going to say in regards to the kings, you know, this is really as i've read this many times it's it's almost a culmination of well this is what god warned you about you want a king this is what he's going to do and it's just you know anytime you have imperfect rulers as we know in the world throughout history um, this is where you get you get chaos in the end there's there's always fighting there's always power struggles there's always and and you know the element of uh, they should know better because these are God's people. It makes it doubly worse almost. Um, however, I'll cut them a lot of slack when I look at myself and our country. But anyway, um, just, yeah, this is like, well, this, this is where it was going all along. Yeah, I, I agree. It, and it's, a, it's kind of a pitiful picture. Um, Omri rules for 12 years as king. He did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And it says, more so than the kings who came before him. So, now there's something new. All the kings have been evil. said, this king, specifically it says in 1 Kings 16, is more evil than the kings who came before him. He leads Israel in pursuit of idols. He also, and I'm, I'm putting this in because this will, this is something I want to hold on to because it has New Testament implications. He purchases a hill, and upon this hill he fortifies a city. And after the former owner of the city, he names the city Samaria, all right? So hold on to that, because as Christians, that's gonna be familiar, and we will come back to that. Um, But Samaria, then Omri dies. And then we get to Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, now rules over Israel. So it seems as though this was a somewhat smoother transition of power. Scripture describes Ahab as even more evil before the Lord than all those who had preceded him. Yes, even dad. He takes a Phoenician princess named Jezebel for a wife, and he openly worships Baal, setting up a temple and altar in Samaria. Now, this is different and this is new. 
Israel has been off track from the very beginning, but I, I think this is, Israel is now living, this is state-sponsored pagan worship. The Phoenicians worshiped Baal. He married a Phoenician princess, and now this is, this is, the, not only are we worshiping Baal, we are actively pursuing those who still hold to Yahweh. And I would submit too, just for your consideration, that the definition of the word Jezebel is still in our dictionary. It means an impudent, shameless, or morally unrestrained woman. That word is still with us, and I think its connotation is well-deserved. Ahab, when Herman Melville came time to, when it came time for him to write his most famous novel, and he was searching for the name of a vengeful, angry, wicked captain of a ship, Ahab. These names are still with us, um, and like I said, but this is, this is where they begin to, this is where they earn their um, original meaning. I've got a passage here that I think, um, just in the interest of me not having to go through it verse by verse, I've got a passage here that, this is in a commentary on 1 Kings by Dale Ralph Davis. I thought this was helpful for me. Um, I'll read you a brief summary where it talks about Ahab and where it talks about Jezebel. Omri, Ahab's father, had just been rated the acme of evil to date, but suddenly the award is wrenched from him and handed to Ahab, who apparently excelled his father in that category. The writer emphatically repeats the estimate in verse 33. So Ahab did more to exasperate Yahweh God of Israel than all of the kings of Israel who had been before him. What did Ahab do to merit this distinction? Baal worship. That's what engraved Ahab's name in the first place on the monument of apostasy. Baal worship is lethal on any account, but all the more so when it comes packaged with its own passionate in-house evangelist. Jezebel was not content to practice her foreign superstition privately within the confines of her palace chapel, no. She practiced worldview Baalism. She came to Israel with her own horde of Baal enthusiasts, skilled in fertility theology, and enjoying the free board at the royal cafeteria. Jezebel wore the pants in the family, excuse me, in the kingdom, and that meant butchering Yahweh's prophets, squashing Yahweh loyalists, loyalists under a scam of justice. It may have been Jezebel's orders, perhaps via the zeal of some fawning Israelite converts, that mandated the smashing of Israel of Yahweh worship centers. Not that Ahab was totally passive. He himself hated prophetic criticism and was not above oppressing Yahweh's prophets. But Jezebel was the driving force, the avid propagandist determined to establish a bridgehead for her faith, for the faith of her fathers in Israel. There's a good picture of Ahab and Jezebel, like what's going on and how bad this is, why this is special, this is different. Now, now anyone who wants to do the old thing, you're an enemy and we're after you. And, and so like I said, that's why these names we're familiar with. Um, and an interesting, um, two things happen in response to this. One, God raises up Elijah, the prophet of fire. We'll talk more about him in a minute. And he strikes the land with a terrible drought. This is kind of a tough question. Why is it so appropriate that God strike the land without water in the face of Israel's new fascination with Baal? Well, I told you before that Baal was a fertility goddess of sorts. Baal was also a goddess of rains. Water, so funny, right? You wanna worship Baal? It's supposed to bring you water. Here's the one thing you will not find in the land, water. And Israel dries up like a dust bowl and stays that way. So, there's a problem. Elijah appears, again, this, this new prophet of God appears rather quickly on the scene. Um, again, we see God's hand in, as soon as an evil rises up, it's not as though it's beyond God's control. God had an answer ready before the evil became so great, and we see Elijah rise up. Elijah the Tishbite. And we're now in uh, 1 Kings 18. And this is fantastic. Elijah approaches Ahab. Now remember how wicked Ahab is. Remember what we talked about. And basically the two men exchange insults. I'll read it for you. In 1 Kings 18, unless you think I'm exaggerating. Um, 1 Kings 18, 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, 
Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And then we might say that Elijah issues a bit of a challenge. He said, now therefore send and gather all, all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. I put this in because I think it's a significant event. There's a lot we have to skip over, but I want you guys to have a handle on this because in some ways, it's Elijah's most famous moment. And it's a moment where someone who is faithful to God is called to stand up in the face of overwhelming odds and at a time when there's active persecution against the faithful. And those, of, like I said, those of you who are somewhat familiar with the story, it's a bit of a showdown on Mount Carmel with all Israel as witness. Um, Elijah came near to all the people. I'll read, I'll, read, I'll read for you part of this narrative. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So a prophet of God appears. He's he's very upfront with Israel. Stop wavering, pick one. And they they can't answer him. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. Because remember, God's faithful have been being persecuted and killed. I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord the Lord God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So the people approve of this sort of test, this competition, you might say. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, remember, this is one man, and there's 450 prophets of Baal. Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but, do not, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar. So they are now limping around the altar. They limped around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. You can almost hear the disdain in Elijah's voice. Cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until their blood gushed out of them. You can imagine the scene, 450 men screaming, slicing themselves open, hollering. They're trying to make this happen because remember, all Israel is watching. And Elijah has moved to mo- the mocking stage. You're now making fun of them. Your God's in the bathroom. He can't hear you. Nothing's happening. You know, make something happen. So there's this cacophony of noise. There's this awful spectacle, this pagan spectacle. It's noisy and it's messy and it's And I'll pick it up again, verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And the people came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Remember how they were destroying the places of God? Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, which is interesting. He took 12, not 10. To whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar 
as great as would contain two sails of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. So now the offering's soaking wet. And he did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, remember, Baal's prophets have been working on this all day. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you and that they and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. See the, see the comparison between this loud, tumultuous, noisy, bloody spectacle that the prophets of Baal have put on all day, the confusion, and then see one man, it's, it's quieter now. He gives clear instruction and he prays, and God answers him. Imagine the sound, and then imagine the sound stopping, and Elijah says, it's my turn. God's gonna do something here, and he does. And the people, at his, they seize the prophets of Baal, and they slaughter them. This is a big moment. Um, it shows God's presence, even in the middle of such an evil and troubled time. It shows Elijah's faithfulness, that he would quietly stand in opposition to these 450 prophets. Um, and it shows also, unfortunately, that even in, the, even in the presence of this miraculous sign, this does not turn around the nation of Israel. For a moment, yes, but I mean, this is not the beginning of some great revival in Israel. Israel still continues overall on this long downward path. Um, but I just, I know that was a long passage, but I wanted to read that because I think it's so significant that at this point, God raised up this man and performed this sign. Um, and there, you know, there has to be, things have to move on, um, and they do. Um, Elijah, I barely scratched the surface of the man, and I encourage you to read more about him. Um, Ahab is killed in battle. He, uh, he very bravely disguises himself when he finds out the enemy he's facing or trying to kill the king. So he basically tries to set up someone else to take the, the arrow for him. But he himself is slain instead because, of course, that was foretold. His death had been prophesied by Elijah, his old nemesis. So Ahab later is killed in battle. Ahab's son, Ahaziah, reigns as king. He also does evil in the sight of the Lord and serves Baal. Like his father, he comes into conflict with Elijah. Elijah is much older now, but he's still around. He summons the prophet Elijah with soldiers. After the, this new king, he's injured in a fall. He wants to know if he's gonna get better. And he said, well, who do I know who can definitely call on who's got God's name? Which is funny because he serves Baal, but when he needs to know, am I gonna heal from this or is this gonna kill me? He sends for Elijah. He doesn't really send for him, he sort of summons him and he sends a party of two companies of soldiers and uh, they, end all, they all end up dead, consumed by fire at God's hand. So the king sends a third company, but the captain of this company is a little bit smarter and he falls and begs for mercy from Elijah, persuades him to come. Elijah, he does come to the king and he tells Ahaziah, you're never gonna rise again, you'll die. And so it is. So Jehoram, another son of Ahab, becomes king since his brother didn't have a son. He reigns for 12 years and also does evil in the sight of the Lord. However, he does put away his father's pillars of Baal. This is about the time when Elijah is taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, something you can read about in 2 Kings 2, and he's succeeded by Elisha. 
So it's no wonder they call Elijah the prophet of fire. It seems like every time he shows up, there's fire involved. There's fire that consumes the sacrifice. There's fire that consumes the soldiers. He did. There were more works, more works than that, but his nickname is well earned. Um, and Elisha sends a prophet to anoint one of the commanders of the army as king over Israel. This man's name is Jehu. Jehu was charged by the Lord to strike down the house of Ahab. So Ahab was, for the time, was a, was a comparatively long-lived king, and he had sons. God raises up a man. Elisha sends a prophet to tell him, you're going to be the king. and Strike down all of Ahab's house. This is that judgment that was foretold, this time by God. That I may, um, quote, that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants <clears throat> by the prophets. And it's also foretold that the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel and none shall bury her. And Jehu rises, this commander, and accomplishes all these things. He seizes the throne. He wipes out the bloodline of Ahab. I will not read to you the account of the death of Jezebel, but it is exactly as is foretold. And Jehu is, is um, Jehu, remember Jehu was summoned by God and, and given charge to do these things. Um, he summons the prophets and worshipers of Baal under pretense of calling them sort of all to a um, celebration, you might say, and he slaughters them, demolishes their temple, and turns their temple into a latrine. So, and, and believe it or not, Jehu is the one like last little glimpse of light in the history of Israel. I know we've talked a lot about, about a lot of bad kings and I'm sorry I have to move through them kind of quickly, but Jehu, who again, prophet from Elisha, goes to him and says, God, God's making you the next king. I want you to get rid of all Ahab's household, including Jezebel, that's done, okay? And then, he goes around and undoes a lot of Ahab's work, tearing down, the pro, you know, tearing down these Baal altars, slaughtering their prophets, and turns their temple into a bathroom. Um, really quickly here, because there's so much like blood and death in the story, we have to ask, does this judgment seem a little excessive? Anyone else? I mean, because this time, it wasn't just the, cruelly, the cruelty of the next king to kill everyone. God, by, via a prophet, told Jehu, go and do this. Get rid of everyone. Is that a little much? Are we a little over the top here? I mean, surely there would have been, I mean, you know, God ordained this. And when you read some of the accounts, you think, wow, that is, that is rough. Too much? Thoughts? Well, put it this way. What is the danger of, forget, of forgetting how terrifying the anger and absolute the judgment of God can be? This is the same God that we pray to today. So I would submit to you, this is a picture of why our forgiveness and salvation is so beautiful. Lestwise, you fall into the hands of this God, right? Yes, question. I have a question. Yes. Why does uh, Elijah, um, uh, does all this good stuff, and then all the people who are like 500 people back here, does like all the cutting on their bodies? I'm sorry, could you say that one more time? I don't think I got it all. I want to make sure I heard you. Could you say that one more time, please, Bennett? I didn't hear you really well. Elijah said to the people um, back in First King when he was alive, if you do something, he might answer, and um, he never answered. How come was that? I tell you what, that's... I'd like to answer that, Bennett, but there's so much on Elijah that we could get to. If you come down, that, that's probably a question I have more time for after the service. Don't forget about it. Write it down. If you come up front afterwards, we'll go over it. 
because like I said, there's just, I have to skip over so much to get through this. It's a good question and, and we'll get into that if you want to. Um, then why do they cut themselves? It was, it was common practice for um, the prophets of that day. Um, think about blood, blood is a sacrifice. So think about it as sort of a self-sacrifice to entreat your God to act. They thought of human blood as precious so it was begging their God to make an appearance, which of course did not happen. Good okay, question. Thank you. You bet. Um, so anyway, I just think, like I said, we, we need to have a, the full picture of this. This is the God we pray to, and but for Christ, this is the God we'd fall into judgment by. So we just need to see how deep the price is for faithlessness to God. And I, and I think that's something we can learn from this text. And I, as I said to you, Jehu's purging of Baal and, and all that stuff was sort of a last little flicker of light for Israel. He's the closest thing to a good king Israel will ever have. And even Jehu still, um, still uh, is, is sacrificing to, the, um, to Jeroboam's golden calves. So I mean, he's, in, in a sense, he's better, but he's not great. He does tear down this, this, the, these pagan altars, but he's still worshiping incorrectly. He's not escaped the sin of Israel completely. Question. I was going to comment on the, your question about, you know, is the judgment, is that excessive and stuff? And I would say definitely if I were the one making the judgment, I would not do that. But, you know, it's God and his judgment is definitely better and more righteous and perfect than mine. And also it's like, at this point in the narrative, it's not surprising to me of like, you know, even going back to um, Joshua and coming into the promised land, it's like, go in and like wipe out all of the people who live there. Like, don't leave anyone alive, completely wipe out all of the people who inhabit this land. And I think we see time and again, like the reason is because they're going to be a snare to you if you don't. Like they're worshiping other gods. If you leave them, then you're probably going to start doing that too. And same thing with the Temple of Baal. It's like completely demolish it, get rid of all the prophets, get rid of all the people who love Baal, and make it so disgusting that no one wants to go there again. Because if you don't, you're probably going to turn back to that. Like yeah. they're just the kind of sinful people that... <laughs> Yeah. And like you I, said, with, you know, that's a um, great point. the prophets and the whole, you know, consuming the offering with fire. It's like you would think that that would have convinced like that entire generation for the rest of their lives to follow God, but it didn't. And so God's like, in order to keep you from this, I basically have to remove it from you so you can't do it again. Or, I, I agree. That's a great, that's a great connection. It's one of those absolute commandments. Get rid of it. Get rid of them. Nothing left. I think that's a, that's, we see that pattern. I think you're very right. Who's to say that they wouldn't have fallen back into it again? We know they've got a long, rich history of backsliding. Also, we may find it, God is defending himself, his holiness, his righteousness, but as God's people, as you read through here, there may be something in there that for us is a comfort. What is that? As we read through here, God is also jealous for his people. When he talks about all the prophets you killed, you know, and how you persecuted my people. God is jealous for himself, yes, but he also defends his own people. And I think since we are God's children, that's a comforting thought for us, that our God cares about us and cares about those who are faithful to him enough that he mentions them and be like, oh, um, yeah, and those prophets of mine you killed, the dogs are going to eat you. You know what I mean? So, I mean, God is, God is also jealous for his children in a way that for us can be actually a wonderful comfort, I think. Was a question? Well, I was just going to say, it seems excessive perhaps to us because we, even as God's children, we struggle to remember who he is. Uh, he's the author of the universe, and these people are thumbing their nose at him. And, uh, I mean, they're not thumbing their nose at the appointed king of the south. They're thumbing their nose at the creator God, and he's going to remind them who he is, that who, who you are ignoring, who you are um, not bowing down to, who you are not faithfully following as I asked, as I told you to. And I'm not just some guy, I'm, I'm God. I'm not somebody you made up. It's true. 
No, I, I agree. Um, I think that there's a certain, there's, there's this, there's this reminder about how grave your sin is, um, you know, because in part, the sin is, is, is in a way greater because of who you've offended. If I commit a sin against you by offending you, that's sinful, it's wicked on my part, but if I directly offend God, I have, you know, offended the highest being in the universe, and, and it is, like you said, that is exactly what they're doing, and the judgment is much greater as a result. Um, it can be hard to completely understand, but we, but we must not run away from it or minimize it. It's there, it's scripture, and we have to take it for what it is. Um, so again, the purging of these prophets was sort of the last little flicker of good in the history of Israel. Um, Jehu was the high point, but even he was not godly. After Jehu, Israel will have nine more kings. They're all evil. And the length of time each one spends on the throne shortens, it compresses, okay? So we start having wicked kings and we start having them faster and faster and faster. Their reigns get shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, these are, this is the death knell for the kingdom. The end is coming, okay? We have so much instability, that's all evil. There is no more, you know, there are no more good kings. There's, no, there's nothing. The people have not turned. They've had ample opportunities and ample signs. So, Hosea is the last king over Israel. He reigns in Samaria over Israel for nine years. And when Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, who was becoming a global power at that time, comes, Israel becomes kind of a vassal state and they pay tribute to him. Far different from when, not all that long ago, surrounding nations used to bring tribute to Solomon, seek his wisdom. Solomon who had you know, might, you know, mighty wisdom and his great military. Now, Israel has to pay protection money just to stay safe. But even in its interpolitical dealings, it seems like Israel is treacherous. When it's discovered, this is, we're in uh, 2 Kings 17, excuse me, so yeah, 2 Kings 17. When it's discovered that Hosea, the last king of Israel, is conspiring with the king of Egypt and has stopped paying tribute, the Assyrians come and lay siege to Samaria for three years. They smash the city, enslave the Israelites and carry them all away to Assyria. Israel, the northern 10 tribes of Abraham's race will never exist again as a unique, cohesive nation. They are gone. This is the end of the story for them. Um, there are, there's not a way to make that sound better than it is, but even, even in regards to other nations, Israel couldn't keep its story straight. You know, it's like, okay, well, I will let you remain Israel as an entity, just pay me a tribute. Oh, well, now you're conspiring against me. Well, I'll do what any overlord king would do. I'm gonna come and smash your city. I'm gonna take your people away. I'm gonna take your stuff away. This is not unusual in the ancient world, but they never come back. Um, and I don't have time to read it, but I really would recommend if you read 2 Kings 17, there's a long, it's, a whole, it, it's almost a whole chapter, and it talks about Israel's wickedness and God's judgment. It kind of talks through the whole process about all the things that have happened. Um, and it talks about how in verse, chapter 17, verse seven, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And, and I just, I would encourage you to read that if you want just kind of a summary of this whole process and why it happened. Um, but we know why it happened. It, it was the sinfulness of the people. They would not be faithful to God. It, 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 is, it is very sad. Um, Two reasons I wanted to do Israel before I did Judah. One, Israel's a really sad story. This is a bummer. It's hard to read. And after being in the Old Testament and studying Israel for 20 weeks or so, it's really sad to see the Northern 10 tribes disappear and end in such a way. It's really hard to read. Like, as you're following this story, you know where they've, you know where they've come from, you know what they've been through, you know the troubles they've had and some that they've overcome, you know how God has protected them. So to see them go away is hard. But I wanted to do that because we will see a similar story next week with Judah, okay, the southern two kingdoms, but it does not end the same way, okay? There is a story after this story for Judah. There's a return, there's a rebuilding, there's a and preparation for 
the New Testament. We're, we probably only have two or three weeks left of this, but I wanted to get this out of the way, in a way, because it, it, it's hard to read. Like I said, it's like seeing the, the character in a novel you've really enjoyed die a horrible death. They're just gone and they are no more. But we will come back. We will see Judah next week. This was happening at the same time, but the story has a different ending. And, and, and I look forward to seeing that with you guys. And again, we are closing in pretty quietly on the 400 or so quiet years that happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament when God himself will walk on earth. So thoughts, I left five minutes for questions here. I'd recommend 2 Kings 17 if you wanna read further summary of what we've been through today. Does anyone have any thoughts on Israel, lessons from it? Marion. I was just gonna say, you know, you, you can be really diligent with your children and um, it, it's a lesson that it really just takes one generation. I mean, um, one of my sister-in-laws and I were talking this week about how sometimes all you can do is pray. You know, like when you, it, your kids can be diligent in teaching their children, but eventually they're all going to have to come to their own um, decisions and conclusions. And you'd like to think it's just going to keep continuing on, but it, Israel teaches us, it, and they had, you know, the parting of the Red Sea they were t- still maybe telling their kids about. Maybe they'd long forgotten it and they didn't really give a rip. So No nation on earth had ever yeah. seen such miracles and signs in their history, and it wasn't enough. Thank you guys very much. Thank you, and I'm sorry I had to question over here. I'm sorry I had to compress this so much, but I wanted to get it into one lesson for you. There's much more if you want to dig into it a little more deeply. Mason. Uh, yeah, so one of the previous application questions yes. where it says uh, uh, why God um, strike the land without water. Mm-hmm. Um, do you suppose it's maybe because of the previous promise he made to Noah that he wouldn't destroy the earth again? But <laughs> in, in turn, with a drought, um, no water, meaning no crops, so maybe starving the people. Instead. Sort of an alternate method of judging the earth, but without completely wiping them away. Uh, sir, yeah, I think that's very possible. I mean, certainly a severe drought in any era, but certainly in that era, is a life-changing thing from the greatest to the least in the land. If there's no water, that's, that's rough for everyone. And so, yeah, but, but not to the extent, like you said, of the flood where we're wiping out the earth because God promised he wouldn't do that again. So yeah, absolutely possible. Good thought. Anything else, guys? Thanks again. I promise next week we'll have a somewhat happier ending, but thank you for um, uh, hanging in and through this one. I hope, uh, hope it's useful for you.